Good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome to Harvest Bible Church if you're visiting. We're in the book of Luke, have been for a good while, and our context is uh, the Passion Week of Jesus. Uh, that's where we've come in a year and a half of uh, our study of Luke, uh, whereby Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Uh, it's the last week of his life. He comes into town on a Monday. And he is killed on a Friday. Now, you might have a study Bible or you might have been told somewhere along the way that Jesus came into town on a Sunday. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And that's okay. Uh, You might see a timeline and if you have a study Bible where Jesus came into town Sunday and he did something Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday is just a a day where we don't know what he did. It's not recorded. We know it happened on Thursday and Friday. Um, And that's okay. You don't have to uh, adhere to one or the other. But uh, I believe Jesus came into town on a Monday. There is no empty Wednesday. And so uh, the, the context in which we are in chapter 20 and chapter 21 is Wednesday. On Monday, Jesus came into town on a donkey. As Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 said that the Messiah would 400 plus years prior. That means that the Messiah to come into town uh, has to do so on that donkey. Not a war horse, but a, 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 an animal of, of burden, a beast of burden. Whereby Jesus comes into town. He's been proclaimed as the Messiah. By John the Baptist, his, his herald who went before, his ministry over three and a half years has been uh, completely miraculous. There's not a sick person left in Israel. He's healed them all. He's raised the dead. He's made the blind see and the deaf hear. He has beyond any shadow of a doubt proven that he is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. From the line of David, from the line of Abraham, the promised Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of throughout, he is it. He comes into town on a Monday, right down to the day that the prophet Daniel said that he would in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This is when he will come. We looked at that. Jesus comes into town. On that Monday, he went into town and the people hailed him. They thought their Messiah was here, and he was. But they didn't see the Messiah as one who was going to die on a cross. They saw the Messiah as one who will go in, sit on the throne of David, who vacated a thousand years prior and run out the Romans and rule the world. That's what they thought. And they praised him as such. Hail, son of David, they said when he came into town on that Monday. What he did from uh, Jerusalem, he came in uh, to the, on the Mount of Olives. He goes down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. And he goes into the East Gate and he looks into the temple we see on Monday. He just takes a look around, Mark says. And then he goes back two miles away to Bethany where he's staying at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. Lazarus, the one he had raised to life, who had been dead for four days. He comes back on Tuesday, and he goes into the temple, and he destroys the temple. Not the temple itself, but all of the the money-changing tables that were there. All the ways to make business that that the priests and the scribes had done. They had turned God's house of prayer into a place of merchandising and business. It was the super Walmart of the day. And Jesus went in, and just like you and I would love to do at Walmart, and he just tore everything apart and threw it everywhere. Because it was a corrupt business run by their high priest named Annas. People asked him. Pharisees came to him the next day when he's in the temple teaching on Wednesday. And they said, who gave you this authority? What gives you the right to come in and do what you did? To teach in our temple. Not only to destroy our business, but to teach. Who are you? And they began to question his authority. This is Wednesday. This is actually April the 1st, A.D. 33 where this is happening. And Jesus, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, although I was out last week, where they are asking Jesus, chapter 20, one of these days while he's preaching in the temple, they came by and they said, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? 
But since they couldn't ask Jesus' question, they didn't uh, want to own up to who John the Baptist was. Jesus said, if you can't tell me who John the Baptist was, if he was a true prophet or not, then I'm not going to answer your question. They knew what John the Baptist was, but they didn't want to admit it. So Jesus says, I'm not answering your question. He gives a parable about them in chapter 20, verses 9 and following, and he condemns them, and he tells them who they really are. You are the ones that rejected the Messiah. And by the way, these people that reject the Messiah have been rejecting him throughout his ministry. They are the religious leaders. You would expect that this is this group of atheists around uh, the area of Israel and Palestine, uh, that these atheists, of course they would reject him. Actually, it's the atheists, if there was such. People weren't atheists back then. Only a fool is an atheist. Everyone knows there's a God. Uh, That's why the Bible says a fool says in his heart there is no God. Only a fool says there's no God. Why a fool? Because a fool says uh, what isn't true, what he knows to be true. There were no atheists back then, but they were unbelievers. They were pagans and heathens. Uh, There were people that were uh, poor and destitute. There were prostitutes and lepers. And they followed Jesus because Jesus ministered to them. He stopped to care for them. And their religious leaders wouldn't. They wouldn't touch them. Self-righteous, we don't want to be near you pagans, you make us unclean. Not Jesus. Jesus has proven himself to be loving and graceful, full of mercy. And the religious leaders hate him for it. So it's the religious leaders that want to kill Jesus at this point. They're asking him all kinds of ridiculous questions. And Jesus says, you're the ones that are supposed to see and you're blind. And you're leading everyone else astray. Well, this doesn't make him any friends with these religious leaders. So they began to ask him questions, trying to trap him. In chapter 20, verse 19, they ask him, should we pay our taxes? He says, look, show me a denarius. Show me a coin. And so the coin of that day, had a, the coinage had a, a picture of the emperor who was Tiberius. Uh, the emperor Tiberius who reigned right after Caesar Augustus from AD 14 to AD 37. Tiberius. And Jesus says, okay, it's a picture of Tiberius. Okay, that's his coin. His image is on it. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and pay to God what is God's. In other words, pay your taxes because this is Caesar's money. You owe him that. And pay to God what you owe God. The image of God is on your life. The image of Caesar's on the coin. Give to him what belongs to him. The image of God is on your life because we're all made in God's image. Pay to God what's God's. No one knows what to say. Again, I just make the comment of how wonderful it is to have such an incredibly divine answer that shuts everyone up who's trying to get you. And Jesus does that. Begin to verse 26, they became silent. No one knows what to ask, answer him. So this group of Sadducees rise up, rises up. Okay, the first one is a bunch of scribes. They are scribes, or they scribe, inscribe the scripture. They are, they are writers of scripture. As the writers of scripture, not receiving it from God, but copying the scripture that's been passed down. They're meticulous in it. They know it. They're called lawyers as well. They knew the law. So they fail in their questions. So the Sadducees say, okay, sit down, scribes. We got our question for Jesus. So they come up to Jesus. Okay, Jesus. And these are people that don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe in a resurrection. They, the Sadducees don't. They're a liberal uh, faction of, the, of the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, their, um, their Supreme Court. They don't believe in the books of the Bible, only the first five books of the Bible. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in angels because resurrection and angels are not taught. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they say, Jesus, we got a story for you. There was this guy who had a wife, and he died, and he didn't bear any children. So she married his brother, and he didn't bear any children because he died. And the next one died, and the next one died. Seven brothers died, and there were no children born to the original husband. And then the woman died. So, Jesus, here's the question we have. 
in the resurrection, no doubt they would have said it sarcastically, that they don't believe, in the resurrection, whose wife is this woman belong to? Does this woman belong to? And Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, Luke doesn't record it, he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. That's true for so many today. Our thinking is in error because we don't know the scriptures. We don't bother to read it. We don't bother to study it. We don't bother to pray through it. We don't bother to go to classes that teach it to us. Harvest Bible Church is here to go through verse by verse and teach what God's word says in what we would call big church. We have Sunday school classes that do the ones that I just announced. We're trying to get through books of the Bible, help you with an overview of the Bible, help you understand the Bible. Think as God thinks. Know who God is. That's our goal. We want you to know God. We want you to give to God, to worship God. That's what giving to God is, serving him, sacrificing to him. We want you to know God. God wants himself to be known by his people. But the Sadducees had no desire for that. They just wanted to trip Jesus up. So Jesus, they wanted to trip Jesus up. I get to talking a little fast from time to time. Have you noticed that? You haven't? So let me just take a deep breath, and I'll slow it down just a little bit. So Jesus tells the Sadducees, look, from your own books, from Exodus, one of the books you do receive, God talks to Moses and he says, tells Moses, because Moses says, Lord, who will I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are long since dead. But God says, I am their God. Not I was when they were alive. He says, you are sorely mistaken, Sadducees. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Those three men, though dead, are alive. Shut them up. So at this point, Luke doesn't record what the next question is. So I want you to go over to the next question. It's in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 22. Just move to the left. You'll move past Mark and go to Matthew 22. So the scribes have been shut down, and scribes were, were part of the group of Pharisees, uh, somewhat distinguished from them. So you'll see in Matthew chapter 22, we're in the same context. You can see in Matthew 22, verse 15, it says the Pharisees plotted together and wanted, with the Herodians, and they, wanted, they, they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? The next question is the group of Sadducees there in chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, same context. Jesus tells them all at the end, uh, the Sadducees, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures. She's no one's wife in the resurrection. We don't get married in the next world. We're not having babies in the next world. We are like angels. We are not angels. We are like angels in the sense that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's what Jesus tells them. Shuts them up. But Matthew records this in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, so we had the scribes, Sadducees, now the Pharisees, they asked Jesus a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Actually, before this, I got ahead of myself. They asked, what's the greatest commandment? In chapter 22, let's see, where is it? In verse, beginning in chapter 22, verse 34, the, 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 the question that follows after the, the teaching of the resurrection is, what's the greatest commandment, Lord? So in other words, the scribes get up, they ask their question. They get shut down. Sadducees get up, they get shut down. Now the Pharisees, okay guys, everybody sit down, we got our question. 
when they saw that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and they didn't like the Sadducees, Pharisees didn't. What one of them, a lawyer, which would be a scribe, said, Teacher, I'm in Matthew 22, 36, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Jewish law, when you put all the laws of the Old Testament together, total 613 laws. Write that down. 613 laws altogether. You thought there were just 10. Well, the 613 laws of the Old Testament are summarized in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments summarize all 613. How about that? So just memorize those 10. But I've got an even better shortcut for you. Instead of memorizing all 10, just memorize two. The two greatest that summarize everything. And so the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, because of this huge law, this huge list of laws, 613, they wanted to know what's the best one? What's the most important one? And Jesus tells them the most important law of all in all of the Old Testament is to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love God with all of your heart. That would be all of your affections. With all of your soul, your entire existence, your, your life is, is spent loving God. With all of your mind, in, in other words, you, you don't have any misgivings that, in your mind. You don't think, well, it's just a fantasy. I'm just doing this to get to heaven. I believe this. I believe God with my mind. See, Christianity, Judaism and Christianity, these are, are intellectual faiths in the sense that there's something to understand. It's not fantasy. Love God by knowing God. You can't know, you can't love God, I say, unless you know him. And we spend our lives getting to know him. Cheryl and I were talking the other day about, but when you get into marriage, you marry someone and you really don't know what you're getting into. Uh, you, you love the person you, you marry Enough to think, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. But you spend the rest of your life getting used to your decision. (laughs) Learning to love. You question why you love, but your love becomes so much greater than what it was when you married. And that's somewhat true of God. We go into our commitment to God not knowing a whole lot. And we spend the rest of our lives growing in our relationship with him. Knowing, and we never, the squabbles we have with our spouse, we might have the same kind of squabbles with God. But he's always right. (laughs) Love the Lord your God. You know, the Ten Commandments, God says, love me, I am the Lord your God. No other gods before me, number one. Okay, this is what we would call, and even Doug preached this last week, a vertical relationship between us on earth and God in heaven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Make no idols to God. Make no idols, no graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I'm thinking. What? Yeah, I was going to say that. Keep the Sabbath day. Thank you, Daniel. Keep the Sabbath day. Those four are our vertical relationship with God. Is it now I got to keep the Sabbath? All of those have to do with loving God. I love God, so I won't make an image uh, to any other God. I will not use his name in vain, and I will worship him all the time. Not just on the Sabbath, but I will worship him. I love God. Those four commands in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, 
are our love for God, that vertical relationship. The next six are a horizontal relationship. And they are as follows. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. I'm rattling these off, folks. They better come to me. I better look good. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet another man's wife, property, whatever. These are horizontal things. If we love God, we keep the first four. If we love our fellow mankind, we love our neighbor as ourselves. 613, that's a lot. Narrow them down to 10. Eh, I had a little struggle. I needed Daniel to help me. But narrowing them down to two, it's the whole thing. This is the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. Oh, if we just did that. You know, if, if we did that, we wouldn't even need locks on our doors. Do locks on your doors bother you? If you're fumbling for keys, doggone it, it falls to the, I mean, my keys fall around all the time. And it takes a while for me to get down to them, even though I'm only five foot eight on my best day. To get down there, get them back up, and I'll gripe, and ah, stinking thieves. If I didn't have thieves, I wouldn't have to do this. So much will change if we loved one another. Let, let me make that a, a quick application to you in 2024. Stop hating each other. If you're in a difficult marriage, just choose to love your spouse. They're not perfect, and neither are you. Choose to love that person. You say, well, I don't feel it. I, I'm not talking about feeling it. I'm talking about love as a verb. Just love that person as God loves you in spite of your sins. Love. Stop watching the news and hating what's going on. Folks, that's all prophesied. That's going to happen. It's going to unfold. Don't be on the right or the left. We are not in politics. We are here to glorify God. Forget all that other junk. It, it's too stressful. world's going to pot. It already is in the pot. It's being boiled in the pot. It's going down, and so are we. Even so come, yes? Did we not sing that? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. On these commandments, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Go back to Luke with me. And so, even though Luke doesn't record that, I hate to miss it. It's good to read the Gospels together. Luke is more, gives more of a summary on many occasions where Matthew and Mark will give it more, in more detail. So the next question is, at the end there, in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, it, Luke just summarized it by saying, they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. That's just the best place you can be. Anyone else have any questions? Good. So Jesus turns the table on them and asks them perhaps the most pivotal question. Then as now. Luke 20, verse 41 then he, that is Jesus, said to them, how is it that they say that the Christ is David's son? By the way, the Christ is Greek for uh, the Hebrew Messiah. Messiah is Mashiach. It means anointed one. If you say it in Greek, you say Christos, which means anointed one. So if you say Messiah or Christ, you're talking about the same being. It's the anointed one of God. God anoints his kings. You see that? He pours oil over the heads of the kings. They're anointed. They're the anointed one. This is the one. So when he speaks of the Christ, you could just easily say the Messiah. 
It's that anointed one that God promised in the Old Testament that he would anoint that was coming. He told David, he said, I am going to anoint one from your body who will be king forever. That's why we have the genealogies of the Bible. We see that Abraham began back here. A thousand years later, David was born. A thousand years later, Jesus was born. Jesus from David, Jesus from Abraham, all from God's promise, his covenant. This is the anointed one. And so Jesus says, how is it that they say, they meaning uh, all the religious leaders of the day, they say that the Christ is David's son. Well, that's easy. Because God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, he promised David a Messiah, as it were. A, a, a perpetual king from his kingly loins. That's easy. How is it that they say that the Christ is David's son? So let's take David. David was king over Israel from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. So let's just keep it a round number, 1000 B.C. In 1000 B.C., David is king. And God promised David, you will never fail to have a descendant on the throne. I promise you a house, a kingdom, and a throne forever. From your descendants. And so we have the genealogies in the Bible. We see where David birthed uh, Solomon and then another one named Nathan. And then we've got the genealogies that come from these two men in your New Testament. When you read Matthew, you'll see the genealogy from Solomon. When you read Luke, you'll see the genealogy from Nathan. They all come down, both of them come down to Jesus of Nazareth. Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father was from that line. Mary, Jesus' real mother was from that line. And so they come down, Jesus is that person. So David, I've got to use my, my illustration here. This is important, where my hands are. David right here in the middle. Right down the line, a thousand years later, Jesus, okay? Now, Jesus is not the direct descendant of David. He would be a great, 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 great grandson, right? David here, Jesus over here. So we would say that Jesus is a son of David, right? David in the middle, Jesus over here, son of David. Everyone said that. So Jesus says, how is it they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, he's quoting from Psalm 110. Stay with me, my friends. So he's quoting from Psalm 110 that David wrote around 1000 BC. And David writes this in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, stay with me here. This requires a little bit of techno, tech, techno stuff. When David writes, he's writing in the Hebrew language. And the first word, there's two words for Lord here. The Lord said to my Lord. When David wrote it, he said, Yahweh said to Adonai, my Adonai. In English, it's just Lord and Lord. Because we don't print Yahweh and Adonai. So Jesus, or David is saying around 1000 BC, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And Adonai is also a used designation for Yahweh, but sometimes it's just used for someone in power. Uh, a lowercase l, Lord, or Sir, or Master. Master, Sir. Sometimes that's the way the word Adonai is used. Now, we know from the Bible, especially in the book of Isaiah, that there's only one God. Only one God. And God says throughout the book of Isaiah, I am one. I'm one God. Besides me, there is no other I'm the only one. And then he says things like, I and my Redeemer, I give my glory to no else, no one else, only me, I and my Redeemer. So there seems like there's two, but he's that Redeemer. 
So David is writing, Yahweh said to my Adonai. David's writing, he's writing in the first person. David apparently hears Yahweh speaking to David's Lord. Yahweh spoke to my Adonai. Well, Yahweh is David's Adonai. Yahweh is David's Lord and God. Who is he talking to? All Jews believed then, as we believe now, this is what's called a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is an Old Testament psalm that's talking about the future Messiah. You can read about messianic psalms in Psalm 2, a little bit of messianic psalm in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, and Psalm 110, just to name a few. And again, it's a psalm speaking a thousand years or so before the coming of the Messiah. It's just predicting what the Messiah will do and say. And so everyone knew David was writing a messianic psalm. They all believed it. So David brings this out. Hey, how is it, you know that David, living in 1000 BC, we know that he will eventually birth the Messiah. They don't believe it's Jesus. He will eventually, his line will birth the Messiah. So David can easily call the Messiah, that's my son. But Jesus says, how is it that David calls his son his Lord? My dad never called me Lord. That would be strange. My dad never called me and said, Lord God, Lance. He should laugh because it's ridiculous, isn't it? No one does that to their son. When you predate someone, you know more than that someone, right? No matter if that someone, meaning your child, thinks that they know more than you, they never do. Always use that trump card. What Jesus is saying is that David lived here. His line eventually birthed Jesus here. Except David is also saying that the one that came here lived way back there. Existed eternally way back there. And so the the pivotal question when Jesus turns the table, he's saying, look, we know that the Christ will be David's son. How is it that David also calls him Lord? The answer is pretty simple. The Christ is both God and man. You don't get that. You can't call yourself a believer in Christ. You cannot call yourself a Christian. You must know who Jesus of Nazareth is. To know God is to know that Jesus is Yahweh. He has always existed because God has always existed. He became a man. Thus, Jesus of Nazareth is both God and man. The thing that Jesus' detractors would not believe, did not understand, and had no answer to. All you can do is say, no, he's not, or I believe. Makes perfect sense. It's a messianic psalm. And the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. And we know that's what Jesus did. When he ascended into heaven, where did he go? The Son of God sat at the right hand of God the Father. We read about in, say, passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus, the Son of God, is interceding for his people in the right ear of God the Father. You know who's sitting on the left ear of God the Father? Romans eight twenty six says the Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray for. The Spirit prays for us with groans too deep for words, Paul says. 
the Trinity, one God, existing eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, they have no answer for that. So Jesus says in, in verse 44, Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples. So the, the answer at the end is uh, Mark says that no one wanted to answer him anymore. Um, Luke just skips that. But no one has an answer. And again, the answer, you should put it right there at the end of that is, the answer is, he is both Lord and God. He is both man and God. But no one had that answer. They think Jesus, whoever, whatever believers there are, even the 12 disciples, think that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to set himself up as a physical king that day or that week. They don't know that the Messiah is God in the flesh and will die for the sins of the people who set us free from our sins, not from Rome. Verse 45, and while all the people were listening, Jesus turned to his disciples. So it's like he's been having this public conversation. He's been questioned by the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He shut all them up. They're all quiet. He's in the temple on Wednesday, April 1st, 8033. Probably just looks at the crowd. No one else dared to ask a question. Okay, I'm going to talk to my guys over here. So he turns to the 12. That's what it says. Probably a, a uh, private conversation. And he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings on the marketplaces and the chief seats and the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, the longer version of this is Matthew 23. And Matthew just goes all out to record what Jesus said. Let's take a look at it real quick, shall we? It's too good to miss. Because it's Jesus, some would say at his worst, I would say it's at his finest. Denouncing how wicked these religious leaders are. Folks, we live in a day where the worst people on this planet are not child pornographers they're not people that are stealing other human beings and human trafficking. They are your religious leaders. Oh, the others are wicked, I know. They're pathetically wicked, but we expect that from them. Religious leaders, preachers, priests, imams. Jesus denounces these in, fa- in uh, Matthew 23. I'm just going to go through a few of them. Jesus says the same thing. He spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. In other words, they act morally, but don't listen to what they say. Don't do as they do. And beginning in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. By the way, the word woe is a, is a, it's a very tame and almost benign word in English. It means to damn Curse, curse you, damn you, scribes and Pharisees. Not in a curse word the way we would do if if something doesn't go our way, but to be damned eternally. Cursed be you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again, verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, blind guides. Again, verse 23, 
Woe, hypocrites, you tithe all the little things, tithe of your dill and your mint. Think about that. You go into your, your, your house and go to your little your section of, of, uh, of spices and say, honey, we need to be giving all of these too. We can't just give our money. We need to give this. And they did meticulously. Let's take a little percentage of our, our dill and our mint and we'll give that to God. And they were meticulous to give. But Jesus said, you, you tithe of your dill, mint, and cumin and you neglect the weight of your provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus has been offering that to all the people around Palestine. Talking to hypocrites. I should say talking to prostitutes that no one wanted to talk to. No, you're so wicked you can never be saved. Prostitutes then and now can be saved. No one is outside the purview of Christ's blood. Isn't that beautiful? I don't care who you are here today, what you've done, what you did you have not outsinned God in his mercy and grace. I hope maybe there's somebody here that needs to hear that. I don't care what you've done. I'm, and I'm not making this up. This is just what God has said. Our Lord forgives all sins. You can be made perfectly clean today by receiving him. Just saying, I believe you, Lord. I want you, Lord. But these people wouldn't talk to those. They would never say God loves you. They would say just the opposite. God hates you, prophets, you, you prostitutes. God hates you, you who are infested with, with leprosy. You're suffering because you're a terrible sinner. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus touched lepers. He touched the untouchable. He loved. And they hated him. So he denounces them. Verse 27, woe. Verse 29, woe. Over and over the woes. Luke just glosses them over. It wasn't his purpose to bring them up. But he does say, here's what they do in summary at the end of verse, verse 46 again. Beware of the scribes. He's talking to his disciples. So I'll just tell all people today who call themselves Christians, beware of religious leaders. The ones that like to walk around in long robes. Well, today we don't walk around in long robes. Uh, one who wants to be noticed walks around in a, in a five dollars $6,000 suit. Or wants to be a hipster doofus and stand up with his tight jeans and high tops. I guess that's more in tune with the modern look. I want to look like him or her. Skin-tight clothing on a beautiful woman who is somehow a preacher. Beware of these people. They want to be noticed for them. They like to walk around in long robes. They love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love their titles. Your magnificence, your worshipfulness. Doctor, reverend brother doctor, minister, oh great one. They love that. They make sure that every time their name is written, there's some sort of alphabet soup prior or after their name. They love that. They love the greetings in the marketplace. Hello, great one. And they love the chief seats in the synagogue. They like to sit where everyone can see them. Then as now, and places of honor at banquets. Here I am. Where's my wonderful seat so everyone can know how great I am? I remember the church I grew up in, my dad said, I'll never forget it, I don't know why he said it. Well, I do know why he said it, but it, it just never left me. Uh, but the preacher at the time, dad said he never misses an opportunity to have his picture in the paper. Never misses an opportunity to have his picture somewhere to be seen with his smiling grill out there, with his name underneath it, and his honorary doctorate right there in front of it. 
Never misses an opportunity. This is the false prophets of our day, then as now. They devour widows' houses. The word means to destroy. A widow, by the way, because we're going to get into the first four verses of chapter 21. Let me just explain that. It's, it's really pretty quick and easy. But these religious leaders, with all the things they demand, they also take advantage of the weak. And there's no one more weak in that society than a widow. Today, not so much. Widows today inherit money, and uh, they can work. I mean, w- widows can, can do quite well. Some, some of them are the wealthiest people in the church. They're, they're not as poor and destitute in the modern world as they were in Israel. But a widow then, she didn't work. If her husband was dead, and she had no children, she had no one to take care of her. Typically, widows died soon after their husbands died because they, they starved to death. If someone took care of them, it might be in the temple, and this is what, these are the ones that the scribes and the religious leaders took advantage of. By the way, the same thing happens today. Same thing happens today, even with the wealthy widows. The ones that, uh, that give, their, give most of the money to the health and wealth preachers, guess who they are? They're the old widows. They're women. They're people that are being duped. They're people that, that believe, that are very naive, they devour widows' houses. That's what the religious leaders were doing. In other words, uh, we'll take care of your house. We'll take care of you, but your house belongs to us. Your property belongs to us. And for appearance sake, offer long prayers. And it should be in parentheses there in King James English. They love, people love, some folks love to offer long prayers. We don't offer, I was uh, talking to someone, I can't remember when it was, but they were saying, can't remember what church it was. They said, but every church service is open to everyone to pray as they see, feel needed. I go, what? You leave that open? Yeah, oh yeah. I said, how long is Sunday morning? Because people sometimes go, oh, I can be heard. And I'll just pray and pray and pray. And there's always that person, even in the, in the example they were given. People, oh yeah. This person, they start praying, you know it's going to be 12, 15 minutes of talking. And I said, and they still give them the microphone? Oh yeah. I wouldn't do that. They offer long prayers. People, and, and people that offer long prayers, using King James English, they come away, notice them. Notice their face when they're finished praying. They're usually feeling pretty good about themselves. They waxed eloquent, as we say. Long prayers. Folks, you want to pray? Get on and get off. Lord, here's what I have. Here's what I need. Pray as long as it takes. Get in and get out. God is reading your mind all day anyway. You can talk to him all day. You don't just have to bow your head and get on your knees. God's talking to you all day. You're talking to him all day. Whatever your prayer is, get in and get out. It may take 20 minutes. It may take 20 seconds. But do it while talking to God, not for appearance sake. Jesus says they will receive greater condemnation. At this time, mind you, in the context is what I read from Matthew 23. Jesus has just lambasted these scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. For how they treat the destitute, the widows. At this point, a widow appears on the scene. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Chapter 21, verse 1. The treasury, there were 13 receptacles. They're in the court of the the female, of the women. You've got the the temple proper. You've got outer courtyards. And then this much outer courtyard called the the courtyard of the Gentiles and and of the women. And there were 13 receptacles whereby people would go in and put their money. A money box or money boxes. And Jesus is observing it. Verse 2, it says, And he saw a poor widow putting two small copper coins. The Greek word is lepta. A lepta is one one-hundredth of a denarius. Oh, that doesn't help. What's a denarius? Denarius is a coin. We've looked at that before. 
denarius was worth a one day's wage for a day laborer. You work for a day, here's your denarius for the day. Uh, a lepta was one one hundredth of a day's wage. It's essentially worthless. Two of them are worth even less than our modern penny. While he's watching the rich put their gifts into the treasury, by the way, back then you didn't write checks. Uh, your, your, your bag of money, you carried a bag of money, bag of coins, and so you could tell who was giving what. Bags of money are coming in, apparently, from, from certain rich people, uh, and they put in. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus isn't condemning that. And then he saw this poor widow coming in, and she puts two small copper coins, two lepta, less than a penny. And Jesus, seeing a teaching moment, tells his disciples, and he said, verse 3, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, this demands some commentary. Um, person that makes a million dollars a year uh, who might give to the church $10,000 a year might look like a good giver, 10000 Maybe they give 50000 a year. Let's just say they give 50000 a year. Wow, it's a big giver. Well, in proportion to what they make, that's not that much. 50000 a year is not a whole lot of giving if you make a million dollars a year. 5% of your income. Uh, that's nothing. Um, a person who makes $50,000 a year, who gives $5,000 a year, is actually giving more. Where $5,000 is more than $50,000. Why? Because it's in proportion to what they make. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Look, they gave a lot of money. The amount of money the rich gave was far more than what this woman gave, but she gave more because she gave all. Why would she give all? Is there anything in the Bible that says that we're to give everything we have to the church coffer, to the temple receptacles? The answer is no. In fact, it would be very irresponsible. No one here has been called to give all of your salary to the church, or even 10%. If you grew up in the Baptist church as I did, you were taught that you give your 10%. Well, you will be not find that in the New Testament. And the tenth that's taught in the Old Testament actually equates to about 28, 32%. How about that? So let's forget that one, too. <laughs> that included their taxes, uh, their free will offerings. That's a lot of money. The New Testament does not teach 10%. The New Testament teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, cheerful giving. Whatever you decide to give, give it cheerfully. For some of you, that's a huge relief. But can you give 1% or 0% cheerfully? What does that say about your thankfulness to what Christ has done for you? That's between you and God. Why is this woman giving all of her money? Well, first of all, it's not a whole lot. You're not going to miss it. I mean, I'd probably do the same thing. Look, if all I'm left with is a penny in my life, I'm here, Lord. I mean, that's easy. But really what I think is happening here is that this is an example right there in the context of Jesus talking about those religious leaders who devour widows' homes where this poor widow who's being taken advantage of feels obligated to give everything she has. I have nothing else to live on. I have to give this because my religious leaders have told me I must. I think that's a stark possibility. Jesus doesn't teach anything from this. It's a mere observation. The application is certainly not that we are to go away and give everything we have. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says that we are worse than unbelievers who do not care for our families. Worse than an unbeliever is one who does not care for their families, financially speaking. God doesn't want all of our money. He never says, give me all of your money. Uh, this is not a passage that teaches perpetual poverty. 
Well, that we're supposed to do as Francis of Assisi did, give everything up and live in poverty. It's not there. It's not in the Bible. Oh, God does call that rich guy to give up everything. Look, if you want to follow me, you want the kingdom of heaven, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Guy couldn't do it. If he would have said yes, Jesus would have said, I was just testing you. You can keep it all, and I'm going to double it. I don't know. But even Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus was convicted in chapter 19, Zacchaeus only gave half of his income up. He was a wealthy man. He said, I'll give half of what I have now. And Jesus commended him. So there's nothing in the Bible that says we give up everything. So this woman's example, stay with me, is not one that Jesus teaches us to follow. Feel better? You should. I think it's an example of the crookedness of those scribes and Pharisees, of how they were taking people, taking advantage of people. I want you to note that what follows, the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about the end times, which may excite some of you. But reason Jesus is gonna talk about the destruction of the temple is because it was so stinking corrupted by the religious leaders. Corruption comes when we do not know God. Because in the previous paragraph, Jesus asked his question, who is the Christ? Who is he? Who do you say is? You might be one of those skeptics. I got questions. I want to know, do I pay my taxes? I want to know about the resurrection. I don't believe in the resurrection. That's a miracle. I don't believe in miracles. Miracles can't happen. People believe that all day today, all around our society and elsewhere. They believe that by being righteous, looking pious on the outside and doing and saying, wearing all the right things, saying long prayers in King James English and whatever, they try to draw attention to themselves. But the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? I'm giving you the answer, class. Jesus is the Son of God. He didn't have his beginning when Mary gave birth at Christmas time, 2,000 years ago. He has existed for eternity. He is, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. He is the creator. There is only one God. God became flesh. He became man. From the line of David, David, Jesus, Jesus, God. He is both God and man. And there is salvation and no one else but him. See, at the end of the day, we recognize, Lord, we're messed up. We're sinners. We've fallen short of your glory. Is there any hope for us? The answer is yes. Me, God says. You see, God lived our life. We live our lives and we, we sin, we fall, we curse, we fornicate, we think horrible thoughts, we kill. Jesus didn't do any of that. When he smashed his thumb between two rocks as a carpenter, he didn't curse. He lived our life. He did it perfectly. When we believe in him, we take his life and his victory upon ourselves. And then he died our death. When we believe in him, his death paid for our sins. If you're a Texans fan, God bless you because you were probably a former Oilers fan, God double bless you. I am both of those, even though I am also a Cowboys fan, which means I am one of the elect. 
It's just a joke, just a joke. Last night, maybe you went to bed and you told your, your significant other, we won. We won, because the Texans won. They're in the playoffs, we won. How many of you would admit to saying we won? Well, you didn't win, they did. And if you were like me, you sat on your couch, your chair, and you enjoyed a, a bit of joy over, admittedly, a shallow thing. People on TV that you have no control over whatsoever, you are giving your emotions to, to a bunch of kids. Overpaid, foul mouth, repugnant kids on TV, typically. But they brought you some sort of a joy because their victory is your victory. You identify with them. Today you'll put on a Texans hat, a Texans shirt. We won. We did. They're our team. That was fun. It's been a long time. <laughs> Folks, Jesus' victory at the cross is our victory if we believe in him, if we trust in him. His victory, our victory. Who is he? He is both God and man. He came as man to live our life and die our death. As God, he has the power to grant us eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice in such good news. Maybe there's some here today who don't believe it. Turn their hearts towards you as only you can do. May we be faithful to put that out there, the truth. You will be faithful to save who you wish, when you wish, for your good glory. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it, to be of it, and to be a part of it. May your name be worshiped. May you be glorified in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 